Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. I am Dan Lust, joined this week by the panel, Mike Lawson, Taryn Sharma, and our guest this week, professor, new professor at Hofstra Law School, Andrew Bua. What's up, gang? How's it going? Good, good. We are back. Mike, what is this, Mike? Our second episode of 2023? 2023. Jordan. My, my first violation this week of the New Year policy, I went to write like 1-9-2020, and I wrote 2022, so... You know, I think it I think it happens to the best of us, but we are here in 2023. I think it's officially time where people have to stop wishing Happy New Year to one another. I think we've officially passed that threshold. But, you know, listen, sports law doesn't wait. They don't look at the calendars. All of a sudden we are faced with, I think, one story. Uh, maybe two weeks ago we were talking about, like, biggest stories of 2023, what might happen. This one was off the board. So if you had WWE becoming the most interesting story in the sports law saga, you know, 11 days in. Congrats. You probably just won a lot of money. So we're going to break down first and foremost, the WWE saga, Stephanie McMahon, Vince McMahon's daughter walking away from the company, Vince McMahon coming back, kicking people off the board, maybe being sold to Saudi Arabia and then not being sold to Saudi Arabia. So there's a lot of elements to it. Obviously, you know, we are, uh, we all come from different disciplines and we'll kind of get into our backgrounds a little bit as we get through our conversation. But this is kind of an, uh, you know, it's corporate law, it's securities law, something that we don't normally cover on the show. So we want to get into it and just kind of give you guys uh, a general assessment of what's going on. And then uh, maybe a story that we covered, um, you know, maybe, I don't know, Mike, when was the last time we talked about Jake Paul? Like a while ago. That's your guy. Yeah, I think it was a while ago. Probably, I think the last time we fought was October, maybe. So maybe back then. Yeah, you're, you're, you're probably the biggest Jake Paul guy in this podcast. Sure. Let's go with that. That's factual. That is factual. And then uh, Greg Berhalter, we're going to go over that saga. We got into it very briefly, but ESPN just did a deep dive in it, and uh, I think it is is good. So Taryn uh, is going to be our helping us with the soccer stuff. Mike, Jake, Paul, and Andrew. This is the reason we had you on today. You might be maybe maybe a co-tie for first place. I think we might be the biggest wrestling fans that are sports law professors. Is that possible in the United States of America? <laughs> There's probably not too many of us, so if you were going to rank us as uh, the co-number ones, I wouldn't be surprised if it's true. Andrew, I mean, you could speak a little bit about your background. I think people know the three of us, Andrew, so I did mention you are Hofstra's new sports law professor, but what uh, what have you been doing prior to this biggest day of your professional career? <laughs> uh, so I currently work in the uh, the legal department at Wasserman part of our team sports division where uh, anything and everything that involves the athletes we represent, I get involved with from a, a legal perspective that can include things uh, like sponsorship and endorsement deals. It can include team contracts. It can include uh, personal legal issues that players have going on. You know, anything that impacts our players, uh, they need a lawyer to, to speak to, uh, get involved with it. I love how you're like, I work at Wasserman. Oh, I work at one of the biggest, you know, sports <laughs> in the entire world. No big deal. I'm in the team. Oh, no big deal. Andrew is a heavy hitter, but he's not going to say it. So I will say it for him. So we love to have you on and breaking down a topic, which I know you've been on the weeds on. So before we jump into it, a reminder, our podcast sponsored by Themis Bar Review, top bar prep company in the entire galaxy. We are getting very close to the February bar. Taryn, I like that. It's like, boom, explosion. Themis is just the best. We should hire a graphics guy that when we say, Themis Bar Review, top bar prep company in the galaxy, like fireworks just go off. I will say, actually, we should we should mention this here. It depends on where when you are listening to this, but we are doing something new in 2023. Our, let's see how much we can stick to it, but our video initiative, we are all very busy people. We're going to try our best to try to get a video feed out, you know, at least a couple times a month so you can see what we look like. Mike, you can see how he is actually nine feet tall. Themis Bar Review powers a lot of what we do, so we want to always give our credit to them. If you are looking for a bar prep company, 
certainly uh, those that's the place to go and use our promo code conduct for a giant discount or just call us and we will hook you up okay so let us get into it i'm going to lay out i think the broad brushstrokes and andrew you're going to be our substantive expert for this particular topic so you know i, I imagine everyone knows what's the general gist of what's going on uh, with wwe we're not going to take you all the way back to uh the wwf era or the territory era or you know the wcw era we're going to try to take you back about, I don't know, six months ago. Vince McMahon, it's a family-run company. It has been for years. If anybody watches the show Succession on HBO, which is one of my favorite shows, it's kind of like the sports version of that. So you just need a kind of a general backdrop of what we're about to get into. That's a fair frame of reference for all of this. Guys, what's the dad's name in Succession? Logan? No, oh, it was Logan. Logan, Logan yeah. I think it's Logan. Yeah. So put it this way, right? If Logan, right, and at the end of succession, right, Logan is slightly potentially losing his mind, right? He's getting older. They're trying to figure out who's coming next. That's what's kind of being alleged here with respect to Vince McMahon, that Vince McMahon is getting up there in age with respect to the company. The secrets of his past are coming out, just like what happened with succession on the cruise ships. Don't talk about what happened on the cruise ships. But what alleged to have happened, you know, I think it was six months ago at this point, maybe give or take. A story came out where Vince has paid, uh, you know, in the vicinity of 10 to 15 million dollars in hush money with respect to women, both inside and outside of the company. By all indications, consensual relationships, but that money was paid to make, you know, make these stories stay hidden. And it's an issue. It's not necessarily a crime or anything like that if it's consent to consenting adults. But when you're dealing with a publicly traded company, you're dealing with a board of directors and you're dealing with family friendly values and you're in the uh, PG era, you're no longer in the attitude era. Probably not a good idea to have the face of the company be dealing with that type of stuff. So Vince made, by all indications, it seems, I don't want to say how voluntary it was, but left on his own accord a couple months ago. And then rumors started swirling back in December that maybe Vince wanted to come back and he felt like he was given bad advice to step down. Vince, although he stepped away from kind of his like day-to-day role and Vince McMahon is CEO, president, or actually he's not the CEO, but he's the founder of the company. You know, he's very heavily involved with storylines and all that stuff behind the scenes on a business side. He very much stepped away, but what he did not step away from was his voting powers and his seat on the board. That gives you kind of a little bit of a backdrop. And I guess I'll say one more thing. Who took the company, who took over the company in his place? Stephanie McMahon, his daughter, was appointed co-CEO with a guy named Nick Khan, who uh, I imagine, Andrew, you've had some runnings in with, uh, you know, in your experience on the agency level. And then Triple H, obviously, uh, Vince McMahon's son-in-law is in the mix. Shane McMahon, his oldest son, is not really in the mix, but you can't count Shane out. He's probably like five to one to maybe take over the company, but got to be paying attention to all the McMahons. And don't forget about Linda, who has her own political connection. So a lot of moving parts here, um, but that's the backdrop really as as we really were in mid to late December. So Andrew, um, you know, unless you're living under a rock, WWE news has been everywhere. There's maybe three or four updates that have happened in the past week or so, but you can pick your poison. What What's the most uh, important part that you're seeing here and, and stuff that you want to advise our, our listeners on? Yeah. So just one thing to note initially was, uh, you know, Vince actually attempted to make a comeback to chairman in December. And that was uh, unanimously rejected by the board. So when that happened, uh, that's when Vince sort of said, all right, well, I'm going to do it myself. And he exercised the voting power that you just referenced a minute ago. He exercised that voting power to uh, put himself back on the board, as well as two other individuals who were actually former co-presidents of of WWE. And in doing so, he also removed three other board members while two other board members resigned. What he essentially did was stack the board with, you know, people who will presumably align with his vision for what he wants to do. 
So he actually stepped off, he actually was off the board and he had to make this coup to get himself back on, but he never lost the voting rights, right? It was like the class B shares. Correct. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't practice securities law. And we'll yeah. try to give, give you as much to be dangerous. Those that listen to it, if you were a securities lawyer to listen to this, certainly reach out. We're happy to have you on the podcast. If you are a wrestling fan, that is the condition. Yeah. Okay, so Vince comes on, and I think the part that, I don't know if you're trying to follow some succession storylines here. Vince, right, was investigated by WWE. There's potentially an SEC investigation with respect to Vince. SEC has announced whether or not they're investigated or not. But WWE launched a special committee to investigate Vince McMahon internally. I believe, I'm not sure of the individual's name, but I believe the board member in charge of that investigation, Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong, I think was one of the three that Vince extricated from the board, walked away from the board, right? I believe so. Uh, Not 100% certain, but I believe that's what happened. So you have the WWE kind of maybe for, uh, I don't know, for outside purposes, for optics, hey, we're investigating Vince McMahon. And Vince comes back and guess what he does? It's like the scene, like uh, in Entourage, right? When Ari comes back to the office and he shoots Adam Davies with the paintball gun, like uh, Vince is, Vince is coming in and uh, you know, so I I don't know exactly what's going to happen. We should mention one more thing though. Stephanie McMahon, his daughter, who as Vince, you know, as Vince came or Vince was leaving the company. I don't know if everybody remembers this, but Stephanie McMahon had prepared on her own a couple months back to take a leave from the company for, for personal reasons. I'm sure probably to spend some time with her kids who are now kind of getting up there. But when Vince left and kind of, you know, and, and what happened to him, Stephanie had to stay on. So now that Vince is coming back, Stephanie is stepping down. She issued a letter of resignation to the company earlier this week. So uh, and, and I will say one more thing, if you just want to have another seat of drama in here before we get into some of these factual developments. What I want people to pay attention to that haven't been following the product that closely for, I don't know, Andrew, how long has Vince been in charge for? Like 40 years, 30 years? Uh, since what, the late 70s, early 80s, right around that time? Right. So Vince, Vince has been in charge for a while. He's run the company a very particular way. So for those 50 some odd years that Vince has been in charge, there's been so many people from the outside are saying, if only Vince left, the company would be so much better. So in this couple month window where Vince has been gone, Triple H, uh, who people will know, Paul Levesque's is his real name. He's been running the company in a way that I think fans are really getting behind. And fans are kind of seeing, hey, Vince kind of doesn't need to have his fingerprints all over this. We kind of maybe even like the WWE product more than when a young guy who was a professional wrestler, a very popular guy for many years, is running it versus a old man who may, may be out of touch with reality, right? So the, the problem that we're seeing when Vince left and Triple H came in Triple H is doing a lot of things that Vince wouldn't have done. Uh, I know that from, uh, we'll say, on on good authority. And I think the fear is that some things that Triple H might have done might have angered the man who is now back. He's back in town. He's got the paintball gun. Let's just say, you know that GIF? You guys make fun of me for saying GIF, but I'm going to keep calling it GIF. You know the GIF where, like, the dog is there and he's, like, there's a fire all around him and he's, like, sipping his, like, little cup and he's, like... This is fine. It is not fine. WWE is on absolute fire right now. Legal alarm bells going off left and right. But I digress. When Vince stepped away and Stephanie and Triple H kind of stepped in, the thing that Triple H did that Vince wasn't doing, I I think, was, I don't know, because Vince was heavily involved when he was younger, was heavily involved in the actual wrestling itself. So he would get involved, get in the ring, things like that. It would always be kind of a wow factor type of deal tear both of his quads you know yeah, right <laughs> triple h as a his like he started his career going through you know the ww well i think he was even before that you know wcw w- under w- the name of uh terror rising right wcw now. into you know wwf into wwe 
him and Shawn Michaels, where they had their duo. DX. DX. You know, Triple H was, you know, very popular going in, well-liked. He was liked by the wrestlers. That's a big deal, too. You know, this is a a form of entertainment, and you have to make sure that the, the, I, I guess, talent and the wrestlers are very happy with what they're doing. Triple H was putting it more into the 21st century. He was trying to be more... Uh, inclusive bringing in i mean wwe has has a history with bringing in you know movie you know movie actors and and different famous people to pop in and things like that but you know triple h was doing the same thing so uh i think people were generally happy with the two of them coming in but i think what what is the most interesting behind the scenes is when stephanie now has stepped back she's removed herself as ceo resigned as ceo and then Vince comes in. He has this rumored. Uh, we're going to get into the, the, this rumored sale to Saudi Arabia, and I know Andrew has a ton on that. But and we're going to talk about the class action lawsuit that comes in too. But as soon as as soon as he comes back in, everyone jumps on Vince. Now we have the class action that's filed. We have this rumored purchase from Saudi Arabia that gets blown up. So I, I just don't know. There's, there's just been this uh, attitude that's been so averse to Vince McMahon that as soon as he comes back into the helm, all of a sudden everything goes crazy again. I think that there's also one other point, the the synergy that has existed between Triple H and Stephanie McMahon, given that they are married. I, I think that that's been good for the functionality of the company. I'm not the biggest wrestling fan, but I, I have heard the same, Dan, as what you said, uh, that that things have been going well and people have been buying in. I think that what we have here, what we know of how Vince has thought about the initial stepping down is that he was given bad advice and that he he thinks that he didn't ever have to step down and he probably could have weathered the storm that resulted from the uh, the payments out for the uh, the sexual misconduct allegations that he had faced and just to to jump back for anyone that doesn't know it's not yeah you mentioned it Dan it's not necessarily a problem that he paid this out because it came from personal funds but he didn't report the uh, that these funds were being paid out and that is again the important part for a publicly traded company and it was almost 20 million dollars not an insignificant amount of money. I think we should address one thing while while we're here. Like I don't, I don't. Maybe this will come as a surprise to some. I saw some numbers maybe a week or two ago that that WWE was being valued, or you know, just with this way the stock had been at and the stock's been going way up as of late in the six billion dollar range. So I don't know. We talk a lot about like will, what will the commanders sell for, and we're talking about like I don't know six billion, seven billion. We talked about the Broncos selling for four billion and the Suns selling for four billion. Like I don't know if many people realize this. WWE is worth the same amount uh, as as the you know the highest value teams in all of sports, more than any basketball team. So uh, I imagine most of our listeners, if they had the choice, would pick ownership of a particular team over the WWE. But you know, this is a very big asset. So, you know, we we spend so much time talking about all these teams being sold and allegations forcing someone to leave. If people are wondering why we want to cover this, it's not really that far off, except it's a publicly traded company, which adds a whole other element of disclosures and transparency. So we get a window into the eye of the organization that we don't get with respect to the commanders, that we're fighting for tooth and nail with respect to the NFL's investigation of Deshaun Watson and what happened with Stephen Ross, right? Unless those private leagues want to punish and want to make an example of someone like we're never really going to find out that stuff, but very different with WWE because they are a publicly traded company. When they sneeze, 
they have to put like a resolution decree out there. Like they, they have to they have to tell people about that. So let's talk here for a second. This is where we were as of like 48 hours ago. It was just kind of some bad seeds in people's mouth. And people were wondering why Vince McMahon wanted to come back. Vince McMahon, in coming back to the company maybe a week or two ago, whenever that had actually occurred, he, he said, at least in, in the, co- the corporate filings, that Vince would be helpful to the company to increase value to, to shareholders. That would be something that would be beneficial to have him back. And that's certainly possible. Vince has ushered in the WWE era. And obviously, you guys, this is wrestling nerddom, and Andrew and I can talk about it offline. But once upon a time, wrestling was not a commercial product. It was just like, like I, I, don't, I don't think this is offensive. It was just like kind of like the circus. You just sat down, you parked yourself in a particular territory. There were no television contracts. And like there was like the Memphis territory and like, Smoky Mountain Wrestling. It was all different types of territories. And what Vince McMahon did once upon a time early on, he basically said, you know what I'm going to do? I have the New York territories, thanks to my dad. I'm going to create a television product. And that's going to be a national product. And yes, you might operate, you know, Memphis Wrestling or Smoky Mountain Wrestling or wherever these other different wrestlings were. But my television product, even though I'm in New York, it's going to be showed over there. So I'm going to compete with you from my home base, you know, over in in New York and, and Vince's Technically, WWE is is based in Stamford, Connecticut, but, you know, the the New York area. So Vince not only would do that, he was actually paying to steal the top stars. So Hulk Hogan, he would steal and Macho Man. And also Vince is is a very bright guy, right? We can say what we want about him on a moral level, an ethical level. But in terms of a business guy like that, Vince created this empire out of thin air. It was a family owned business. Wrestling wasn't really worth anything. And then all of a sudden, Vince put everybody else, literally every other company out of business, including Ted Turner's WCW. And Vince was standing alone on the pile of ashes for 20 years. Now, different landscape with AEW. We can talk about that later. And pay-per-view, Dan, right? He's always been at the forefront of broadcasting rights. He has a good feel for that. WrestleMania, right? WrestleMania revolutionized the the pay-per-view industry and the TV industry. It it really did. Yeah. So Vince and then obviously now WWE had their own WWE network. They were one of the first entities to do that. That was since purchased by Peacock. So WWE does a lot of things right to have a $6 billion valuation for a wrestling company. Let's just, let's call a spade a spade. So if Vince says, right, I, I'm coming back to improve the valuation of the company. Like, I think we can somewhat, uh, we can buy that now. Okay. Here's the story that happens yesterday. And whoever wants to take this can take this. I was intrigued by it. I have been hearing some mixed things. So here's the tweet. Someone by the name of Stephen Mulhausen, who is blue checkmark verified he works for, he's the social media for pro wrestling, uh, for DAZN Wrestling. So DAZN Wrestling, people know what DAZN is. He has a tweet, quote, sources, WWE has been sold, hard stop, to Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. The company will go back to being private. Unknown if Vince McMahon will return to head of creative, but is expected by some people. Absolute bombshell. Why I'm reading it here. And actually, you know what, Andrew, I'm going to just give it to you. That's the tweet that we saw. Absolute bombshell. That was like dropped on us like very late at night. Take us from there. There were two bombshells yesterday, actually. The first one was uh, Stephanie announcing that she is resigning from WWE again. Uh, So, you know, we thought that was our share of WWE succession stories for the day. But then a few hours later, some wrestling journalists started tweeting, uh, oh, there's something bigger going on here. Maybe you want to stay up a little bit and see what happens. And then shortly after that, the tweet that Dan just referenced uh, was published. 
Um, and by the way, that tweet has been subsequently deleted, but it was up uh, probably all night. I don't know when it was deleted, but it was. And the tweet said that WWE wasn't in the process of selling to Saudi Arabia, but had been sold to the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund, who were going to take the company private again. Now, that was last night. If we fast forward to this morning, those reports have subsequently been debunked. And uh, the, the line now is that the uh, company is continuing to explore all options. And really, the, the idea did seem a little far-fetched. It would happen that quickly, given Vince just came back with the idea of hoping to sell the company at some point soon. So it's a little crazy that, you know, he comes back in a few days later, they're sold to Saudi Arabia, but I suppose we'll see what happens. One other thing I want to add there real quick is, you know, you might be asking, well, why Saudi Arabia? Well, that's been a consistent rumor with WWE because they've had a working relationship with Saudi Arabia for years now, uh, probably back in 2018. They get paid a lot of money to host a few shows in Saudi Arabia per year, which if you were to believe reports made by those wrestling journalists, it's a huge reason as to why they're so profitable. So that's why Saudi Arabia is a consistent rumor for WWE. Let's pause here before we get to the last part of this. You know, we're the three of us are I think, generally engaged on social media. Like we, we follow this. You know, Twitter ethics is certainly a thing. This guy, Steve Mulhouse, and I don't want to be so critical because he follows he follows the conic detrimental kind he follows me so i gotta be a little bit careful here but he sends this tweet that is the tweet that gets picked up everywhere friend of our show you know mike we co-authored a piece karen we've done it as well for joe pompliano's newsletter joe saw that and i because i saw the newsletter this morning it was all about the potential sale to saudi arabia where did joe get that from because it was buzzing on twitter how did it get on twitter Steve Mulhausen, right? What's interesting about it is DAZN, D-A-Z-N, is a massive wrestling you know, entity. We're going to talk about the PFL and the Professional Fighters League and the UFC, and they have their own media rights claims in, in UFC and, and things like that. So they're, they're a big entity. And so this is, it's not as, as high of a threshold as maybe like a Woj bomb or a Jeff Passan, but in terms of where the source is coming from, DAZN is a big media rights in the wrestling world. So I think that's why people were grabbing it and looking at it and being like, done deal, this is crazy. But as we've seen with Carlos Correa, they clearly got hit with the uh, pending physical. So it got washed uh, overnight. But I think that the sale to Saudi Arabia is also big because of the news coming with Ronaldo. So like Saudi Arabia just t- absolutely takes taking over the sporting world too. So about people, live formula one. It's, right. it's, Absolutely. It, it's, it's that wow factor of people are seeing Saudi Arabia come up regarding the sports world. And they're like, okay, this could be real. But wait, what we got, we got to stop here. This is, this is where the question comes in. This tweet has been deleted, right? So it said it was sold. I've, we've heard of different stories where somebody might've said something, somebody got duped. It was a catfish situation. This tweet was deleted with no explanation. It wasn't like a, hey, I got this wrong, right? Taryn, who was the guy that got the judge tweet wrong? Was it Heyman? Not Paul Heyman. John Yeah, yeah. Arson right. Judge. Yeah. Right. Like, Arson Judge to the Giants, right? Like, you know, he he acknowledged it. He owned it. Sometimes you got to own the loss. This is an interesting thing because we don't know, right? I don't think he got hacked. I don't know if it was a half-truth. I don't know if the sale is 75% completion, if it was only deleted because it was done. It's a deletion and nothing, no clarification points whatsoever. So our friend of the show, who has been on with us a couple of times, AJ Perez over at Front Office Sports, as only AJ can, started going after this guy and saying, like, this is journalistic ethics. Maybe this is even a fireable offense. Does your employer know what you're doing? Radio silence. So maybe the cat got out of the bag a little quick. Maybe this deal was in the works. Maybe that was Vince McMahon's plan all along. It was me, Austin. I'm full of them. I'm full of them. Yeah. I mean, I, I still don't know where the seeds of truth are, right? We don't, we don't have any clarification, which I do think is interesting as we sit here. 
couple things, Dan. Maybe he's afraid to respond because uh, he's scared that lightning will strike twice. And with the public investment fund, uh, yeah, you named some of the properties and then you count European soccer as well. They have shown a, a, that they're willing to invest huge sums in what I think a lot of us would call sports washing. They want, when you think of the public investment fund, they don't want you to think of human rights violations or anything negative that may be going on in the country, which is sourcing all of this money. They want you to think of wow, like look at all of these great sports properties that they own. And WWE would be another feather in that gap. You mentioned the longstanding relationship. WWE was one of the first sports to really open up the Middle East. And and so it it really is a kind of a natural relationship. So it wouldn't be surprising to see, but I think it would be disappointing in in some sense because when I think of WWE, that is like a a very American thing, in my opinion. And and uh, even a lot of my friends who are really into wrestling, one is like uh, an Armenian guy, grew up in an immigrant family, and wrestling was like his first plug to American culture. And the other is a Greek guy who grew up in Greece, but learned all about America via wrestling. So I think that it's a little bit sad that 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 sport in particular would be a victim of of sports washing. You know, it's it's 2023, right? People are throwing around money left and right. At some point, this this sports bubble has to pop. But who knows where it is? This money just keeps going up. So certainly see. So this that actually brings us to our last segment of this WWE discussion. You know, we talked about who's leaving, who's coming, who's going. But the backdrop in all of this, this is not a privately held company, right? There are no like shareholders of the NFL who can come and like demand Roger Goodell's job and sue him for him not, you know, with not handling concussions the correct way. We just had in my law school class and Andrew, I'm sure you'll teach this class, right? The fan that sues Bill Belichick and the Patriots out of Spygate is a Jets fan. And he's like, the Patriots cheated and you cost me money on my Jets season tickets. And the judge, it was a circuit uh, circuit case, went all the way up. And the judge is like, listen, you're a fan. You have absolutely no right to sue Bill Belichick. You have no standing here. All you get is to sit in your seat and have a good time. So this is where the things get a little bit different between the NFL and the WWE. A lot of these right minority shareholders, like they have says in the company, they can do exactly what's being done here. File a class action lawsuit alleging that Vince McMahon is not handling the company in the right way. So, Andrew, I'll give it to you for this piece. I know you're not a securities lawyer. I read, you know, I read a lot of the same articles. I'm sure you did try to unpack it as best as we can, but kind of give us the gist of what is being alleged in that lawsuit and maybe what it is designed to do. Yeah, so our third bombshell in two days here. So as alluded to, a shareholder commenced a class action lawsuit against uh, Vince in uh, Delaware Chancery Court, alleging that his move, his move to, uh, quote unquote, take complete personal control over any major corporate decisions by adding his cronies to the board violates Delaware law, uh, pursuant to Section 141 of Delaware General Corporation Law, which speaks to a breach of fiduciary duty. And they're also alleging that Vince's actions violates Delaware. WWE's corporate charter. Now, one of the the things at play here is that uh, allegedly Vince rewrote company bylaws to require shareholder approval of a sale and or certain media rights deals. And I believe the argument is is going to be something along the lines of this is showing a, a willingness to act against the best interest of the shareholders, and they're seeking to uh, overturn the change of those bylaws. 
so look, this lawsuit was was just filed today. I think it was uh, probably not completely unexpected, especially given uh, you know Vince has been through his fair his fair share of lawsuits. So look, we'll we'll see what happens, but that's where we stand right now. I just have just one thing to add to. I was looking through the lawsuit and I was looking through some of the allegations. You know, you talked about a breach of fiduciary duty, violating his voting control. I mean, I, I can't remember the exact number. I think he has an eighty-one percent stake in WWE, so he does have control, right? He has the majority control, but he's really what they're saying is he's abusing his power and abusing his control. And what they were saying was he was timing the, the return because they're recently now negotiating a new media rights deal. So they were they were saying that he was you know timing his return so he can control that media rights negotiation. Even you know even alleging saying that he was threatening to withhold his majority support if they didn't involve him in these um, negotiations. So I just wanted to read one part of the allegation that I thought was pretty interesting. Sue alleges that McMahon, like you said, Andrew, you know, violated Delaware law with this move to quote, take complete personal control over any major corporate decision by quote, again, adding his cronies to the board. End quote. And and they were just saying that he was putting in, you know, his guys that were loyal to him and loyalists to him to make sure that they can that they can do his bidding for him. So I just thought that was an interesting allegation that they're throwing in there. The same guy that um, has tweeted about this lawsuit, uh, he, he's uh, at Reese Kelly G on uh, on Twitter. He also says that Vince McMahon actually doesn't own 81 percent of the shares he owns. 37.6% of the shares as of March 2022. But Dan, as you mentioned earlier, class B shares uh, is what those are. So they come with 10 times the voting power. And uh, and so regardless of all of that, people always ask, like, why do companies uh, register in Delaware? Like, what is it about Delaware? Well, Delaware is very clear when it comes to corporate law. They have pretty well settled uh, case law, and that makes it a little bit easier for businesses to predict how uh, a court, a chancery court, would rule. And so, in this case, you, you talk about uh, Vince coming back now, and the reason that he's coming back now is because in October 2024, those media rights expire. So, given that he controls this at least 81% of the voting power, even with all that, he still has these fiduciary duties, and especially though, because of that, he has the fiduciary duties to all of the shareholders and to the corporation. And so the breach of fiduciary duty that is alleged here, one of those would be a, a duty of loyalty. And so in Delaware, that requires a, uh, a director to act in good faith. They have to advance the best interests of the corporation. And th they also have to refrain from conduct that injures the corporation conduct detrimental some might say and so in this case we'll see what how, how the court views it but a individual somebody with with uh skin in the game like this shareholder could say that vince's activities uh, especially the sexual misconduct and having to pay out these uh settlements and then not making it uh, known in the filings and then letting it come out later and then leaving the board, coming back. All of the drama is very negative for the company and that's going to affect their ability to make money. We'll see whether a court actually believes that. But the last thing that I wanted to say, Delaware, uh, as it pertains to the decisions that officers make, 
they're pretty friendly and, and deferential to the directors of businesses under the business judgment rule. So essentially, if the the individual who is a officer is doing whatever they believe is in the best interest of the company in good faith, the courts are generally going to let that stand. So uh, I, I think that it's an uphill battle, but it would be interesting if this got to discovery. Taryn, what was the name of that the guy on Twitter that was talking about the 81%? Uh, that's uh, It doesn't matter what his name is. <laughs> Do you get to get the reference? The is it The Rock? Yeah. It is The Rock. Okay, let us pause there. Obviously, we're going to keep tabs on this WWE stuff. It'll be a story that we hit periodically, but you know, it's not not really much else to cover there. We covered the the general landscape. We'll see what goes on. WWE in the middle of all this has got to put on shows twice a week. They got house shows. They got WrestleMania season coming up. So this is happening on the road to WrestleMania and the most busiest time of the WWE schedule. So you know, the WrestleMania is like their Super Bowl and everything reset. So I guess we'll we'll put a pin in this. What would be very surprising, unless I'm going to tie it back to sports a little bit, we have, we're very heavy on the law on that one. This is a made-for-WWE storyline. It is, right? They've done this in the past where they've taken seeds of real life and, and broken it in, right? Like, I, So I, I don't know what they're going to do. I, I imagine people are going to be watching the product a little bit more. Just when Vince McMahon left, WWE ratings were up that much when he gave his final speech to the crowd. And then, uh, Andrew, you, you, I was watching that night. I was like... What's he going to say? And he said absolutely nothing. So I think I think they're ready to pull the trigger and make this a real storyline. But see, I mean, at some point, someone's going to sell the life rights to this and make a ton of money. We'll see if it happens now or it happens later. Okay, let's stick within the world of uh, entertainment slash combat sports, all this fun stuff. Mike, uh, you you put this on my radar with respect to Jake Paul and joining the PFL. So I'll let you take it away. But I do think it's a story that people should be paying attention to. We just talked about the WWE, and I think a perfect transition is that Logan Paul, he's dipped his toes in the in the WWE world, and he uh, you know appeared at WrestleMania with his $5 million Pikachu uh, Pokemon card around his neck, and he initially had a boxing career. You know, he was trying to be a, a YouTube boxer, and he's more transitioned into, um, I think, WWE and, and the world of uh, wrestling entertainment. Um, but his brother has been very adamant about breaking into the world of boxing as well as UFC. And uh, I think one thing we've talked about Jake Paul a number of times on this podcast. I'm not a Jake Paul lover, as Dan Lust loves to tell me. But I think what it is, is he is forcing Dana White's hand. Dana has just been so bad about paying his players. Right. And he is he's been. He's been uh, ridiculed for the payments that he, you know, the lack of payments for pay-per-view for his fighters. And Jake has just been, you know, constantly going at Dana about this. Now, Jake Paul is making his rounds uh, of fighting, you know, retired UFC guys, some some entertainment guys. And what he has done, I think he's 6-0 and right now. And now he has signed a contract and he's also an equity shareholder in the PFL. The professional fighting league, which is not the equity. The equity is very is significant, Mike. I mean, that's not something that any UFC fighter has equity in the company. Correct. But I think that's also because I don't see Jake in this transaction as a fighter in the PFL as more. I think he's going to shift into an ownership role. I think he's going to try to be more of a Dana White because I don't think he I, maybe he will. But I don't think he wants to be an actual MMA fighter. I mean, that's pretty much the the constant conversation is he's fighting boxers 
who are not boxers. And, you know, his most recent one uh, was Anderson Silva, who, who's a retired UFC guy. And there, there's all this conversation and Nate Diaz is fighting with him saying like, hey, like, let's fight in the MMA ring. And Dana White says the same thing, like step into the octagon and then we'll see how good of a fighter you are. So I think he's, you know, kind of putting himself out there by maybe potentially training and fighting in the UFC and then fighting in the octagon. I'm um, not UFC, I'm, I'm saying MMA uh, by being in the PFL. But what what he's done let me kind of take two steps back. What he's done by by signing with the with the PFL is he's created this super fight division within the PFL. And what's interesting about the PFL is they're different from the UFC because they do seasons where it's like a start and a finish. There's a championship. There's a bracket. It's a more formalized kind of fighting situation instead of just putting two guys kind of against each other. So the super fight division is going to be they're drawing fighters in who already kind of have a big crowd and a big following. So it's going to be somebody who has a potential, you know, it's somebody who like Jake Paul, I mean, he sells pay-per-view. I mean, he does. So somebody like him who, who might not be a fighter or somebody who is a big fighter, maybe somebody who's crossing over from the UFC. That could be the people in the UFC who have ridiculed Dana White. So that could be Nate Diaz. That could be Jorge Masvidal. That could be John Jones, Conor McGregor. I don't know. It could, it could be these guys that, were big names in the UFC who have a big draw, who now can get, this is the big part of it, 50% of the pay-per-view, where UFC fighters make less than 20%, and sometimes even you know significantly less than that per fight. So this could be a big draw for, for some big fighters who want to switch over to the PFL, which, again, I, I don't think the PFL rivals the UFC in any way right now. They have Not a yet. Not yet. They have a small audience, but I mean, this is a big deal for them. And I think what what's really, really interesting here is Jake Paul's business partner, Nikisha Badarian. Nikisha is big because he is the former CFO of the UFC and he handled pay-per-view deals for the UFC. So now he's formed a partnership with Jake Paul. He is an equity stake shareholder in the PFL. He's working with Jake Paul, who Jake Paul's title is head of fighter advocacy, because that's pretty much all Jake does on social media, which he's just going to be a glorified PR guy, basically. Um, but but they're really trying to encourage fighters to get a bigger paycheck. And I think, obviously, they're going to be in the ears of all these fighters because they want to make more money, you know, and, and Part of the UFC's draw is this the belt. Everyone wants to be a belt in their weight division, and the, and that's the, the the power that they hold. But you know, money talks too, so it's it's interesting to see where they go. And I and I think one more piece of the downfall of UFC, besides Dana White's out of the octagon antics, is they still have an ongoing litigation against the UFC parent company for monopoly and monopsony power. So there are other issues that are unfolding behind the scenes at UFC that I think this could be a big dent into the uh, profit of the UFC in their pay per view. So I, there's probably a comparison here we could draw between WWE and UFC, right? Mike, you know, it, it happened kind of in between our, our recordings, right? Dana White is not without its own, uh, and you referenced it a little bit, right? He's not without its own um, controversies. Dana White was supposed to have, um, what was it, Mike? It was called like the Slap League? Is that what it's going to be called? The, yeah, literally the Slap League, yeah. And then very ill-advised, Ill oh, I don't know, bad, bad timing to have an incident where you're alleged to have a domestic a slapping incident. I don't know what, what, what it would put it, but... Uh, that got pulled from TV, right? Like secretly got pulled off the schedules. Uh, I think it got pulled, but I think it got put back on. So I think it's still airing January 18th. I think they just delayed it. I, I'm not sure if it would. Did it actually get pulled? Pulled? I, I'm not sure. It might have been. I I think. Well, we might be saying there might be some a Venn diagram of where we agree. I know it was at least pulled where it was supposed to start. So if it got delayed, 
that makes sense. But you know, right. we why I wanted to bring up WWE here, right? For a long period of time, you know, what, what drove the WWE was the competition with WCW. That's you know, uh, is it world class wrestling or world championship wrestling? World championship wrestling. Championship wrestling. Championship wrestling. But you know that that really kind of pushed everything up. And, and most importantly, for our legal conversation, it didn't just push the storylines. It didn't just push people to be better. It pushed up wrestlers' pay. It pushed up guaranteed contracts. It pushed down required days that they had to work. So you had guys, and not, we're not going to get back in the wrestling hole. Don't worry, people that didn't want to hear the wrestling talk. But, you know, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, people who know from the NWO, used to be in WWF, they got huge money, and they had to work, like, the fewest amount of days or than they, than they were used to with WWF. So to Mike's point, right, UFC fighters earn very little. The overall percentages they make, you know, might sound like a lot, but... You know, w, UFC has a huge deal with ESPN. Like they have a lot of papers. They do, you know, fantastic on the live event system. They don't have a fighters union. So, you know, what's going to push UFC to maybe be better, right? A competitor, the PFL, you know, Bellator certainly hasn't been able to do it. Maybe the PFL can, you know, if they're throwing around the right type of money. I will say a story that we spent a lot of time with in 2022, which guys, I actually meant to say this. It didn't make our list of biggest stories, but like the live PGA stuff, that's got to be top 10. It's got to be up there. Right. But, you know, PGA's, you know, kind of monopoly. They had no, no other fight, you know, uh, golf associations fighting them. Pay was kind of stagnant and they, you know, live came up at a time where people just said, okay, I'm okay selling out for the money. I'm okay to take a hundred million dollars, $20 million, $30 million. And what happened to the PGA? They all of a sudden had to increase their purse. So I take us all back to say competition is sometimes good. You might be a UFC fan and you hate, the PFL, because they're trying to encroach in your territory. But if you love your favorite UFC fighters, competition is really good because when they get older, right, um, and, and they don't have anywhere else to go, it's probably kind of good to have a, a separate league. So, Andrew, you're our, our close, the closest one of us to is in the agent world here. I would imagine it's a good thing if you were representing UFC fighters, this PFL and the, and the potential to pair celebrities and to come in and giving up pieces of equity. I would think that would be a really good thing for the for fighters in general. Just, sure. just one thing, too. I mean, also, the PFL did sign an ESPN deal. So they're going to have an ESPN media rights deal as well as DAZN. They also have a media rights deal here with the PFL. So, you know, the, there is definitely money that is being put up front for the PFL. Yeah, look, first and foremost, as Mike just alluded to, there is money going into the PFL, money that can be paid to fighters. And uh, you know, it doesn't just go for this. It goes for any industry, right? As 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 Dan sort of touched upon, um, when there's more options for these individuals to, um, you know, to work, that's a good thing for them, right? It's it's a good thing. It it creates some competition for their services, and and you know, PFL is uh, it it's this this new division in PFL is is a bit niche where you know where we're pairing these influencers and celebrities with some fighting proficiency against you know individuals with fighting experience it's it's a really really interesting concept one with money behind it one that will be good for any fighter who seeks to pursue a career at the PFL yeah, I think that's the story uh, here is that there is the the battles between new entrants into the space. I think that this is the largest disruptor era that we've seen in professional sports, maybe since the 1980s. And you had the USFL trying to, to take over from the NFL. So I think that, Dan, part of what you were saying earlier, all of the money that is being paid for all of these franchises and these sports properties, people see that. And they want to get into that industry also and and carve out a niche. I, I, there's 
never been a time where eyeballs are more accessible than they are today. And and I think that all of that is kind of converging to, to create this playing field for this many new entrants into to sports. Taryn, that is a good, that is a good word that used disruptor there. Our podcast reminder is sponsored by Orr and Horgan. They're our favorite law firm over in Nebraska. We'll say that they're the disruptors in Nebraska. So I think we're going to have Tom and Connor back on next week to give us an update in the NIL world. What's going on there with the uh, transformation committee. Taryn, you good to come? Maybe, maybe I can grab you next week. Absolutely. Taryn, remind everybody, you're the, you're the sports law professor, like slash NIL. You, you tell me your fancy title with Minnesota Law School. Yeah, I'm an adjunct professor at the University of Minnesota Law School for our sports and name, image, and likeness clinic, which I was able to co-found with a classmate, Colton Messer, and and my mentor at the law firm, Chris Fahm, last year during my last semester of law school. So the reason I bring it up, we have a lot of young lawyers, law students that listen to us, obviously, you know, practicing lawyers, some pre-law, you know, it comes in all shapes and sizes. But Taryn, I always want to give you your flowers. We haven't mentioned it that, you know, uh, recently on this, but like your first year, uh, you know, out of law school and you're, you know, a professor and you helped start this uh, tremendous NIL clinic. So uh, what what's the famous expression by Kevin Garnett, Taryn? Can you fill, fill me in? Uh, I think he was trying to say nothing is impossible, but he said anything is possible. Except he said it. Anything is possible. We're going to have more fun in 2023. Okay, so let's move to our, our final topic. You know, I, I actually think we did a disservice to this topic last week when we brought it up. There was certainly more to to be said. And uh, let's just say I've gotten in the weeds. Taryn, can I, can I get like 30 seconds to try to explain the familial backdrop or that you can explain what happened? So the current coach of the United States men's national team is a guy by the name of Greg Berhalter. Okay. He played on the men's national once upon a time with Claudio Reyna, one of the top soccer players in American history. Claudio Reyna has a son named Gio Reyna. Okay. Now everything's coming together. Greg Berhalter is the coach of Gio Reyna. He's a top American phenom. So, okay. There's three players here, but that's not just it. Now, back in the day, right. Uh, who is Greg Berhalter married to? His wife went to college at the university of North Carolina with Claudio Reyna's wife. So the women were former soccer players in college and they were best friends. I imagine, I don't know if this is true, but I imagine the sorority sisters, they're going to get coffee together. They're going to Starbucks. They're going to the nails. They're best. They're best friends. They were roommates. They're roommates. So here's the thing. These guys have all been with their significant others for many, many years. So the four of them would party at the University of North Carolina. So they go way, way back. Now, that uh, this is a lot of this is coming from the ESPN Daily podcast. So certainly if you want to get just directly soccer talk, go directly there. I think it was on Monday. But here's the thing, right? Everyone gets married. I think Claudia Reyna is a best man at Berhalter's wedding or vice versa. There's some best man stuff going on. Here's set the stage. Okay, so all these people know each other really well. When Gio Reyna is on the team and Gregor Berhalter is appointed coach, Berhalter is basically saying it's like watching a family member out there. He's like a surrogate son. I've seen him grow up. I've seen him play basketball when he was a little kid. So I think that appropriately sets the stage. So, Taryn, let's let's go back to the World Cup. Let's go back to that first game against Wales. Do you know where I'm going with this? Yeah, he didn't get to play much. Take it from there. That's that's where I think that's an important backdrop. He's the phenom. He's the next LeBron James of soccer. He's scoring goals over for Dortmund, the youngest American ever to score. All this fun stuff. Uh, all these odds that he's going to have the most goals for the American team. People are saying that he is a dark horse to, to maybe lead them to the second round. And the man doesn't play at all. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I think that this is even a little bit before that. So jumping back, Gio Reyna is young. He's playing over in the Bundesliga for Borussia Dortmund, which is a top club in Europe. But 
he's had a little bit of trouble staying healthy. Recently, he's been healthier, and so he's had more of an opportunity to play regularly, particularly going into the World Cup. He was in good form, and uh, and so there was a lot of excitement as to what Gio Reyna could offer, especially because the United States does not have a true striker on their team. We were kind of unsure, like, where are these goals going to come from? It was thought, okay, Gio Reyna, that's a guy. He's like a spark plug, and he's very talented. He could add a lot. In the training camp before the World Cup, Giorena was informed by Greg Berhalter that his role during the World Cup was going to be limited. And like I think a lot of 20-year-old kids, Giorena did not take that news particularly well. He let it affect his training for a couple of days, uh, supposedly, to the point where he was sandbagging so much that his teammates were like, what the heck, guy, and the coaching staff was like, you're going to have to apologize to your teammates for sandbagging this hard. And uh, supposedly he apologized to the entire team and then it was forgiven. He didn't play much in the World Cup. He played like know. seven minutes. He played like yeah. two minutes. And then the game against Netherlands, he played like he majority played of the second. Yeah. But like yeah. that was it. The guy who was supposed to be like the phenom who kind of like the fix is in. Like he knows the coach his entire life. The coach knows the dad, everyone's best friends. Like why isn't the LeBron James of soccer the next phenom playing everyone's saying like we have a playmaker like Polisic, like reyna was supposed to be the guy who i think i've said on this podcast he's from my hometown he's from bedford i live very close uh, i think relatively close bedford's not that big but like uh there was there was some hopes locally that this guy would be uh the local hero but we didn't get that so if you're hearing me a little hyped up but taron go ahead but but 45 minutes in a total of four games is not that much yeah and and after the the wales game greg bearhalter kind of indicated that there were some injury concerns with geo Gio said, no, I was healthy. Uh, There there was nothing wrong with me. It was just coach's decision. So uh, after the World Cup, Greg Berhalter goes to this leadership conference in New York. He gets recorded in a segment that isn't necessarily supposed to be made public, but he uh, talks about how uh, this entire thing went down with a player at the World Cup. A player was not meeting expectations. We had to meet with the leadership council. They had to apologize. The player was on the verge of being sent home. It was pretty clear to anybody who had followed the U.S. men's national team over the last few years who he was talking about. And whether that was supposed to be on the record or off the record, it probably wasn't a good good idea, even if you're talking about leadership, for Greg Berhalter to have shared that because it was fairly obvious who he was talking about, even if he was talking about it in a an entirely closed room. And that's where Danielle Reyna enters the picture. Wait, okay. Can I can I do this part? This is my favorite part. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Taryn, you're right. This thing leaks out. Gio Reyna issues his statement, and he's like, that the player that he was talking about was me. And okay, like, that's seemingly kind of odd. So, Taryn, how old is Gio Reyna? Like 19? Like 18? Right around there? He's like 20, right? Funny, but he's, he's a young guy. He's he, if he was a normal guy and he wasn't really good at soccer, he would be in college somewhere parting it up. This is where the story becomes very relevant. So Danielle Reyna, and this is according to to her own admission uh, at this point, is not is only allegedly. She gets very upset because it's her son. Her son's getting thrown under the bus, and they have, I'm sure a lot of hopes for the World Cup. World Cup doesn't happen every year; it happens every four years. So there were a lot of youngest ever milestones that potentially Gio Reyna could have hit if he scored X amount of goals or Y. He will never get that opportunity again, just is what it is. So Mama Bear is a little bit upset. 
So what does she do? And, and I promise we're bringing this back to the law. Uh, this is just, a, I think, an important, I think fairly an important story, or a story to, to paint. But what happens? Daniel Reyna has a phone call with someone associated with the men's uh, national team, the U.S. Soccer Federation, and essentially says, well, I don't think it's fair that my son's being dragged on the bus. Do you know what Greg Berhalter did when he was my son's age? Do you know what he did at those parties in North Carolina? I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but what comes out, and this, this part is, is certainly very serious, and we did talk about this last week. Daniel Reyna tells someone with, associated with, with men's soccer that Greg Berhalter has a domestic violence incident with his wife, you know, with his then girlfriend, who is now his wife, obviously, I think that was back in 1991, where this kind of ugly incident happened outside of a bar. So the context that she said it to whoever associated with the, with the men's national team is like, listen, he is criticizing my son constantly. He's not dropping this. The World Cup happened a month ago. And then he's at a leadership committee calling out my son unprompted. Like, you know, what my I don't know what my son did to lose playing time, but I can guarantee you it, it's not as bad as what Greg Berhalter did, a domestic violence incident. And, you know, so that was that was the backdrop. And I certainly, you know, people can have their own opinions. Do you think Daniel Reyna was right to do that for defending your son? It's something that happened 30 years ago. You can rest assured that the friendship between Mama Reyna and Mama Berhalter is probably done. But like, let's put this all in its proper picture. This is over playing time in sports. Like we don't ever have this in a professional sports level. We might have it, you know, certainly have it in like a peewee soccer and, and rec league, maybe high school, but like not, not certainly at this level. So I'll pose this to you guys, right? This is, uh, again, probably this is about the last phase of this. When this story comes out is very important. This is this is the legal part. And uh, I could see Andrew and, and Mike getting all excited in your seats over here. Call a spade a spade. Berhalter was up for contract, a uh, new contract. He was supposed to get one. The the men played pretty well. I think people, people were pretty happy. And now all of a sudden with this story, the men's national team has kind of pulled the contract. And there's all reports, I think. Uh, Zinedine Zidane was offered the job and, uh, you know, the old, uh, you know, the old World Cup guy who's headbutting people, I guess it's okay to have him. He can headbutt people on the pitch, just not at bars. I guess that's fine. But Berhalter is basically out, right? That was a very lucrative contract that he's not going to get because of this uh, story that's brought up that was 30 years old. So called tortious interference with the contract, call it whatever you want. Berhalter is now out of a job because of something uh, Now Daniel Reyna has now admitted to doing. So I will open up the floor. I think the story is fascinating on a you know, we're talking about succession stories like this is straight out of like a real housewife story. Let's let's bring up let's bring back wags. Let's get back like Reyna. We'll get back for Alters. This is a good season setting up here. Daniel Reyna wasn't just talking to anybody at the U.S. men's national team. She was talking to Ernie Stewart, who's the sporting director. He's in charge of the United States Soccer Federation. Sorry. Go ahead, Mike. So, that, yeah, and then that's when the investigation uh, opened up last week, last Friday, I think it was. Dan, you said it. it. This is It's turned into like Little League here where there was some issues over playing time. Not that what Berhalter did wasn't, you know, uh, horrendous. Like this was a horrific, you know, incident. This is back in, it was 1991 when this you know, altercation occurred at a bar. So nobody was pulling out a phone or, you know, videotaping what was happening. If that happened, say say geo does this he's in college and, and he did the same thing you know there'd be videos of it tmz would grab it there'd be there'd be a lot more press around it so but the fact that it's just coming out out of i guess anger for the fact that their son didn't get playing time i don't know if you know who knows what her ambition was with with leaking this to a ussf you know regardless what happened now is rosalind which is greg's wife has made a statement saying that yes this you know this happened Greg made a statement saying he kicked his then girlfriend, now wife, Rosalind, 
outside a bar. You know, he regrets everything. You know, he regrets doing that. They've made up. Rosalind said that she, this was a long time ago and she has forgiven him for this. And and she doesn't think that this should impact his career. And it's just clear that whatever the motives was, Dan, like you just said it, she, you know, Greg is most likely will not have, you know, the same, you know, coaching job with the U.S. men's national team, let alone maybe if a job going forward just because of the, the future press moving forward. I certainly agree. I mean, I guess we should also say Claudio Reyna, the husband here. Like, it's Andrew. Well, actually, Andrew, let me ask you this: Are you married? I don't know the answer to this. I think you yes. are. Yes. Yep. Um, okay. So let us assume that you are Claudio Reyna in this situation, and your wife, in defending your son, has basically cost your former best friend his job. And now people, right? I think fairly, people that wanted Greg Berhalter to remain the coach, there's some blowback on Claudio Claudio Reyna because of all this whole situation. So Claudio Reyna's came out. He goes, I had no part of this. I was upset about my son's playing time, but I was not the one that, that spilled the beans here. Um, so, Andrew, put yourself in uh, the shoes of, of Claudio Reyna here. Are you in the doghouse here? <laughs> I think it's safe to say any husband using their brain to a, a minimum degree would probably not say exactly what, what he said. But I, I, I suppose there are some out there that are uh, always willing to risk the doghouse. What can you say? Yes, I would say it's quite the doghouse. I don't know. You kind of have to listen. This is we give you some sports, some law, some fatherly advice, sometimes some uh, husbandly advice. Got to have your wife's back here. So they, I think they issued a joint statement together in part, but like damage has been done. You brought up tortious interference in the initial post that Greg Bearhalter makes on uh, January third. He says that somebody told U.S. Soccer, uh, quote, in an effort to take him down, unquote. Uh, this information, this story. Do you think he was trying to lay some groundwork for a possible suit against the Reynas? Well, let's see. I don't think it's quite ripe yet. Until they hire somebody else, I think Berhalter is still fighting for his job because if he announces a lawsuit, I think we'd get thrown out in a minute because we don't. This is a little bit of the conversation we had with um, with Brian Flores, right? Brian Flores is still engaged in his lawsuit against the NFL for discrimination. He filed the lawsuit while he was in the middle of interviewing for jobs. So it was kind of hard to say like, well, maybe you didn't get the jobs because you're suing the person that's interviewing you. Like, oh, it's a little, little bit harder to say whether or not what would have happened. If you waited until after the cycle, you know, I think that's a better argument. So we'll see what Berhalter does. Like, I think if they hire somebody else and there's certainly rumors swirling about who they're going to hire, that seems to be, a, uh, I think, a fair issue spot, right? We're just getting out of exam season at New York Law School. If that was the question I offered you and I said spot the issue, like that's the issue. There is uh, a real claim, I think, for tortious interference or, right, not just tortious interference, intentional interference with the contract. It depends what the Rainers knew at that particular point in time. Were they really trying to cost Berhalter his job or were they just defending their son? Was it some combination of the two? But at the end of the day, like the Berhalters aren't happy. They've worked their entire life you know, uh, to get to this point where Greg is literally at the pinnacle of, of soccer coaching in the entire, you know, entire country. And now he might be out of it because of something that happened 30 years ago, uh, no more than that, 40 years ago. The standard there is going to be really hard for Berhalter to meet, right? Like his contract is expired. Reasonable minds can disagree as to the United States performance. It's not like he like went to the finals I, they scored like four or five goals in the entire tournament. It, yeah, it, but the reports were that he was going to get it. I mean, the, the reports were pretty, people were happy. And also that, um, I'm not sure of the last the last coach's name, I, memory escapes me, but they wanted a coach to install to have. Arena. 
Arena, yeah, but to have successive World Cups and really build up the academy. So to hire someone new is a deviation when the United States played fairly well. Like they advanced, hey, they didn't make it last World Cup. So baby steps, right? I think Arena was Claudio Arena's coach at UVA too, which is. Uh... I was also looking at it from the the con. You know, it's definitely. I I think there is a claim maybe for tortious interference, intentional interference. But obviously nowadays too, we're seeing a lot of defamation cases here too about his character and moving forward, but. Truth is an absolute defense here because he already admitted to doing, you know, do, doing the act. And but it, it's just, I guess, timing here. I think what's interesting that we are looking moving forward is what the status of Geo, I guess, place on the team is. You know, does, you know, in addition to now you have the issues that he had during the World Cup, you now have his overly involved little league esque parents trying to interfere with their son's playing time. So I don't know moving forward how that's going to play out. Also, what's Claudio Reynolds? What is his kind of take on this? I thought for for a minute, you know, I would have been maybe not surprised, but it would have blew me out of the water if they announced that Claudio Reyna was the next men's head coach. That's that's a wrestling storyline. That, that would be that would be the story. But it's interesting to see, you know, how it plays out. Uh, for the next, you know, World Cup, we can uh, put a pin in that. Obviously, a lot of different topics today, and uh, but but all good ones. So let's do this. Let us finish uh, our segment, and then we'll do some business with Conlon at the end. It's our, our better edge segment with Conlon Farrell. But before we get there, let us finish uh, our side with a what to watch for. I uh, was on the podcast a couple weeks ago talking about Carlos Correa to the Giants, and then we were talking about Carlos Correa to the Mets, and then he might go back to the Giants, he might go back to the Mets. Carlos Correa is now back to. The Minnesota Twins, who could expect it? that? I have no idea. We're going to say that's the proverbial assumption of the risk. Two separate medical staffs who had all the interest in the world to sign the guy to a very lucrative deal, said that his leg would not hold up. The Mets and the Giants certainly weren't in bed with one another. They had just had two independent medical professionals that found that. The Twins, who have had Carlos Correa under their roof for a significant amount of time, uh, I think, what was he there, two years, guys? People are one just there for the one year. But, you know, he signs a, a very large contract. So, Mike, thank you for sending this to me. This is a tweet from Bob Nightingale. Minnesota Twins shortstop Carlos Correa wound up setting a record that should never be broken. Quote, he agreed to $865 million and 29 years of contracts in 28 days this winter. Nightingale usually gets it wrong. He gets that one uh, very, very right. I like him. Yeah, he's, he's, he's not a bad guy. Okay, so that is mine. We'll see. Uh, and, oh, I guess I didn't say it. I'm looking forward to Carlos Correa uh, failing another physical and then going back into uh, free agency. That's that's what I'm looking forward to. Here is the, the the pinnacle of this because he's gone from multiple contracts of over 300 million dollars to now you know 200 million. If he if something happens, if his leg like falls apart in the next couple of years and he he cannot play ever again, and the Giants and the Mets clearly saw this in the physical then this then this whole thing is going to be nuts here's the legal tie-in if there is one i'll keep this pretty brief right insurance contracts you can get you can insure certain parts of your body i'm i'm sure that was a conversation that occurred between coerce side and whoever else but i will say we we did talk about this we had greg clifton on the podcast last week and we you know greg's got a good history of negotiating within baseball and essentially right like there are carbides that you could say hey if you are injured and it's that leg that we had a, a, yeah. a you know a fear about we can adjust the contract and maybe, you know, maybe the years and, and whatnot. So, yes, the number is very big. 
That's the number that the agent wants you to know about. But the other stuff on the back end, certainly very important. And I would doubt a, te a team like the Twins would agree to that without knowing all, all that information and doing their due diligence. So, you know, we don't know the just everybody's got to relax before saying the Twins made a bad call. We have to see what the contract they actually agreed to. In keeping with the uh, the theme of why, why I was on today's episode, we'll keep it wrestling related. And, uh, you know, we, we could talk about a sale. We could talk about what's going to happen next with Vince. But I'll talk about something a lot more fun, which is the Royal Rumble, WWE's annual event coming up on January 28th. It's my favorite wrestling event of the year. It's many people's favorite wrestling event of the year. Uh, bigger than WrestleMania for most of us. 30 men enter the ring. One person emerges victorious. That's it. No legal time, but I, I I support it. I uh I second I second that. Um, Mike Taren, my what to watch for is um coming from the NFL playoffs are starting. I am most interested to see how it kind of shakes out if the Bills and the Chiefs play in the championship game because then they would play at a neutral site, um, which is very interesting. That this was you know something. Besides the coin, you know, the coin flip that could have happened between the Ravens and the Bengals. That's something that's, you know, very important. And, you know, people are definitely upset about, uh, you know, that's a big deal to have home home field advantage. Another thing that, you know, that we're very happy about is uh, DeMar Hamlin. He was released from the hospital on the Bills front. He has filed uh, two new trademarks today. Did we win? And three is back. So very happy to see that he is doing well and, and progressing and um, interested to see how the Bills, if the Bills and the Chiefs you know, play against each other, you know, the neutral site uh, game that would be played. Yeah, good for DeMar. He filed that for clothing, motivational speaking services, and athletic training services. So it sounds like he's preparing even if he's not able to come back to the field of play, that he'll be able to to continue and and have a lucrative uh, second career, which is uh, great for him. And and um, did we win is like awesome. I would definitely buy a t shirt. As excited as I am about the the Vikings because I live next door to their stadium, but the Washington Commanders, who I grew up rooting for as the Redskins, are out, and so I'm already kind of thinking about uh, next year and and the draft. So. Uh, I saw today uh, Rob at, at nerding on NFL on Twitter. He said there are four teams eligible to host hard knocks in August, 2023. And I'm not like a diehard hard knocks guy, but I love all of the clips. I think everyone fell in love with Jamal Williams this year as a result of hard knocks. And so I, I think it, it, it's really great for those moments for the Bob Wiley, where his belly was moving while he was saying hut I think that those are awesome, and that's part of what makes football really great. The criteria for this is that you have to miss, you have to have missed the playoffs the last two seasons. Your head coach has to be in their second season or longer, and you haven't hosted Hard Knocks in the last decade. So, based on those three criteria, the four teams that are eligible are the Chicago Bears, the New Orleans Saints, the New York Jets and the Washington Commanders. I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I'm thinking the NFL doesn't want to put more attention on Washington. There's so no I, I, no it's not going to be them. How about if they have a, an owner that's under federal investigation? Is that Does that disqualify you? <laughs> I, I think it would be the most interesting for us. I just don't think that the NFL wants anyone else to see that. They've worked so hard to obfuscate. Why would they then grant any level of transparency, even if it is with their final approval? I think the Saints are kind of boring. I think this is going to come down to the, the Bears and the Jets 
It's, and, it's going to be the Bears. I'll put yeah, the Bears having that number one pick, being able to flip that, building around fields, uh, having a hundred million dollars in cap space. I think all of those things are are really interesting, and uh, and and I'm excited to watch. You just said something very interesting, Taryn. You said building around fields. Yeah. Hard stop. You just that you assume. Well, I, listen, I I think that's what they're building around do. Bryce Young and trading Justin Fields. They could, but building around, I think that the number one pick is worth more than what they would get for Justin Fields. And and I think Justin Fields has shown the ability to be successful with not a lot of investment on the offensive side of the football. I think that they could draft young, but more that they're going to say that they could draft young because that makes the number one overall pick more valuable. If they say we're just going to build around Fields, that just means that they could, someone could call up uh, number two overall, who is at the Houston Texans and Lovey Smith, another one and done coach for them. And, uh, and they could uh, say, uh, Hey, let's get your pick because they know that number one is not going to be a quarterback. I think um, it's gonna I think it's going to be the bears, but the jets would also be interesting with the drama behind their quarterback. And right. the, I mean, they're also going to, I think they're definitely going to have the reigning rookie of the year between the gang of running backs that they have in that team. Uh, I think that would be and the cornerback and the wide receiver. Yeah. They, they have a great young core. Yeah. Um, we didn't mention it, but maybe one of the worst wins of all time was Houston beating the, uh, beating the Colts in the last second to go from first pick to second pick. I can't understand the logic of doing that, but that's a big, Lovey, man. Lovey knew he wasn't going to be there next year. Who cares when that's, that's the biggest, like last day of school, like flipping the bird to the principal. That's like, Hey, I'm out of here. Like, and I'm costing you the first overall pick. Like, that was insane. I don't. I can't think of a. Listen, we've talked about a couple things today where I don't think there's a comparison to it. WWE, the the Reina story. I I don't recall anything like that ever happening. It's almost like you know, like the kid is driving the car and the kid's like 17 and they look like they're about to get into an accident and like you as a dad, you're kind of watching from afar. Like, no, no, no. And then uh. You know, the accident happens, but the accident is a win. Uh, so uh, not the worst, thing, not the worst thing if they're going for a quarterback because they know the Bears aren't going to go for a quarterback. Well, the Bears are going to trade. Well, the Bears will probably trade the pick to someone that wants the quarterback. Maybe the Texans could draft an NDA to just make us all not talk about <laughs> Jared, that was fantastic. Okay. So I think, I think we should end that there. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Mike Taron, as always. And we will close the show with some business that we do with Better Edge and our betting segment with Conlon Farrell. We do it each and every week. It is the Better Edge betting segment with Conlon Farrell. Okay, Conlon, listen, we've been doing this, what, about 17 weeks, 18 weeks, you and I yep. talk doing the segment? Is that is it it true? Get it done, yeah, man. We've been uh, we've been pretty good. It's been, it's well, been a fun, fun season. Well, a couple things have happened, Conlon. The season is now over. I am told per sources, you are done with the regular season at 12, 4, and 1. Very respectable. A reminder to our listeners, Conlon is making picks off of Better Edge, the social betting platform, or you call it the peer-to-peer betting platform. Uh, users are picking the lines, and Conlon is tearing them apart. 12, 4, and 1 for the season. Use our promo code CONDUCT. Get $20 uh, a match at uh, Better Edge. Okay, Conlon, we are now in the playoffs. Uh, you gave some picks last week. Listen, you had two losing picks, but I, I'll let you try to get your way out of this one. Yeah, so listen, you, you throw me on the spot here, and you know, um, 
basically the the great quote, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. So I was not prepared, and I kind of just off the top of my dome, you know, they beat Michigan uh, in an upset. So TCU. Well, I asked like, you to pick Georgia TCU. I, you got you to set this up here. Yeah, exactly. So I'm getting into that, if you let me speak. Um, so, oh. um, so TCU was my t- pick at plus 12 and a half, obviously. They didn't cover 56 and a half. So if you had them there, um, you still lost. But no, it was um, it was it was a massive defeat. One I'm not proud of, but whatever. The SEC is still king. And that was fairly clear and obvious in on Monday's national title game. The other game, Seahawks coming back late. They went in overtime against the Rams, but don't cover the spread. So whatever. You know, what I mean, you're only good as your last pick. So I'm down two here. I got to rebound. I got to get our on the back on the right side of the column this week. Playoffs are starting, and um, let's go. Let's go from there. So uh, I've I've sensed an interesting trend, Conlon. You 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 know you do all this prep for your pick, and then every time I ask you to do a bonus pick, not only do you lose the bonus pick, you lose the other pick. So it's like you just can't handle it. It's just double like, whammy. It's too much going on. Well, Conlon, I, I guess we won't ask you to do the bonus picks. You're better. You're better when we keep it very simple. We ask you to make one pick, and I want to say again, listen to all all your props. 12, 4, and 1 on the year uh, on your normal picks. Bonus picks, I think you're like 0 and 6. So we just won't do that anymore, Colin. we got to know your strengths. One pick, I mean, it's like that the Seinfeld episode. You know, when George is trying to come back with his jerk store. Jerk store's the line. You know I mean? Every Elaine, Jerry, and all them, they're telling him all the better comebacks. Jerk store's the line. One pick a week. That's the, that's the play. All right, so let's get into the play. We go to a playoff divisional game. So where the division rivals Cincinnati Bengals and Baltimore Ravens are playing one another. Look, Lamar Jackson, it seems like there's more brewing than just his knee injury in Baltimore. It seems like he is clear. um, I don't know if it's clear and obvious, but it seems like he clearly is frustrated with the lack of contract extension talks and stuff like that. He stopped negotiating with the front office prior to the season's begin. But now it looks again like he may not play in this game against Cincinnati on, what is that, a Sunday kick? I believe, yeah. It looks like that's going to be Sunday, the night game. Yep, eight fifteen, Eastern Standard. Um, they're seven and a half point underdogs to the Cincinnati Bengals. I like the Cincinnati Bengals covering the seven and a half. This team is as good as any right now. They're hot. They're uh, they just beat the Ravens in Week eighteen to wrap up the season. So look, without Lamar Jackson on the Ra- the Ravens, um, on the field for the Ravens rather, it just it looks too insurmountable. I think the Bengals home crowd, they're ready to go. Joe Burrow, like I said, they're playing as good as anybody. So the Bengals, minus seven and a half, my first playoff pick on Better Edge. Colin, I like it. I'm not, I'm not going to ask you for bonus picks. I know I know how to mess this thing up. I got a story for you. You ready for this? Yeah, go ahead. Now, I think it's pretty well, – let's pretend you were in my sports law class, and I was telling you offline. <laughs> I just finished grading about close to 100 law school exams over the last uh, so week what does or that so. consist of? Like, what is a law school exam? Like, is it essay? Is it multiple choice? Well, you're like, talking like, to the professor of a sports law class, so I can make the exam whatever I want. Could it be a multiple, <laughs> multiple choice? Could it be essay? Sure. Your guy over here did something really dumb. You ready for this? Yeah, let's hear it. So I thought my first year teaching last year, I did half essays and I did half short answer. So short answer, I don't know, it's like two, three sentences. It's not that big of a deal. So, and then the essays, I don't know, they weren't that bad. I did like two very large Cleveland Guardians-esque essays. It was like uh, we made like a... Uh, Washington Frisbee team and, uh, you know, the Washington Redskins ended up copying the Frisbee team. So we did like a little hypothetical. I didn't like grading the essays, which is too much reading, too much, (laughs) you know, all this. And then the short answers, I'm like, yeah, that was better than the essays. So Colin, here's where I really messed up. Oh boy. This year, I'm like, let's get rid of the essays. 
but let's make the short answers. Let's get 60 short answer questions and let's not make oh them three God. sentences. Let's make them six sentences. So you know what I did? I screwed myself. Do you know how long it takes to grade a paragraph of short answer text? Probably a minute, right? 60 yeah. questions per exam. I have a lot of students. I just told you I have yeah. close to 100 students. So that would mean yeah. that yours truly spent eh, in the ballpark, uh, let's say tens, tens of hours. Uh, I don't want to say yeah. too much, but I spent a lot of time. But that's why uh, from now on, henceforward, this will be known as the multiple choice era. But Colin, this is why I bring <laughs> it up. You ready for okay. this? Go ahead. I asked a question on the exam. Let's see, Colin, you enter, you'll enter my uh, the Lust Dojo for, for purposes of this question. So I said, I go, you know, Sean Watson obviously signs a, a huge contract. It's had impacts on other players. You know, explain how this happened, how the leverage came to be, what the agent did, and, and notably what, uh, you know, contracts are comparably being affected. So yep. I was looking looking for Lamar Jackson. If people said Russell Wilson, maybe I gave them partial credit. People said Kyler, partial credit. But I'm like, I'm looking at it and I'm like, obviously the show was in the weeds of that contract negotiation during mm -hmm. the during the preseason. And I'm like, I don't think Lamar's going to be in a rush. Like the Ravens are basically in the playoffs. It's just a matter of whether or not they're going to win division. So I got a winning futures bet. Bengals plus 125. That was a nice win for myself. But I didn't, I don't, I, I don't have the the boldness that you do to put your picks out every week. So I can't really get credit for that. Listen, I mean, if you look at it in the aspect of Lamar Jackson, again, right, the business side of it, even with Lamar Jackson on the Ravens right now, say he was playing in this week's playoff game. Yeah, that Bengals line probably drops to the Bengals still be favored, but maybe three, three and a half points. And then you look ahead. Who else is in the AFC contending wise? The Bills are a juggernaut. Kansas City's dominant. So if you're on Lamar Jackson's thing, right, your knees banged up. So it's definitely not going to be 100 percent whether he could go. I truly believe he could probably play this week if it was the, the Ravens were constructed as win. Now we have the best team in the AFC, but he's looking at it long term. If he goes out and he gets a hard hit on that knee and he takes it and look, maybe he's cost himself a couple million dollars, more than a couple million, you know, I mean, $10 million. So look, I, I think Lamar Jackson's, he's negotiating the entire time on behalf of himself. And he's got to, he's the, at the end of the day, you've got to look after your, your own money. So I understand where he's coming from. And I, that's why I think the Bengals are the right player. Seven and a half. Okay. Well, Colin, you know, I am riding with you. We'll see how it goes. The pick Bengals minus seven and a half. Uh, I'm riding with you. No bonus pick this week. Cause uh, we know what that does to you mentally. We can't One do and only. Can't put that extra pressure on you. Okay. Colin, excellent, excellent job. And that'll do it for all of us here at conduct detrimental uh, for Dan Wallach, myself. We'll see you all next time on another episode. Conduct detrimental. <laughs>